0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 Avenue North on the third floor. Hope to see you soon. So if I were to read this list of headlines, uh, what year would it sound like? Uh, Strife between Arabs and Jews in Palestine. An awkward transition of power. Senseless violence all over the country. Philandering leaders. Rampant individualism. Moral confusion. And social chaos. If I were to sort of read off that list as if it were headlines in a newspaper and say, what am I talking about? When am I talking about? I think it's not too far of a leap for us to go, you're... You're you're talking about right now. That's that's pretty much what I would read if I were to go out and get the Tampa Bay Times right now. Uh, But that's not actually, well, I mean, maybe that is actually what's going on today, but that's not actually what I'm referencing. What I'm referencing is the book of Judges. Because uh, this morning we are starting a series going through the book of Judges. And all of those sort of headlines, all of those bullet points that I just mentioned are all a serious part of what's happening in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a book that we don't look at much. Uh, It's a book that maybe we've heard one or two stories out of. Uh, Even if we haven't grown up in the church, we may have heard the story or know sort of the idea of Samson. Right, The guy with the really long hair who had a wife who later had a song written about her. Uh... (laughs) So we may know that story, but we don't know much about this book of Judges. And let me be honest, it is a wild and crazy book. It is one of, if not the goriest book, it is one of the one that has uh, some of the most Um, terrible and awful uh, sexual crimes committed in the Bible. Uh, It is a book that is filled with, uh, one pastor put it, um, trashy tales of terrible people. That's the book of Judges. And that's what we're going to be studying. We're going to be studying the stories of trashy tales of terrible people. So the book of Judges, to give you an idea of where this comes, uh, comes, it's the sixth book of the Bible, seventh book of the Bible. And what has happened is the people of Israel have been brought out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And through Moses, God brought them out and brought them into the promised land. But there were a lot of hiccups along the way. There were a lot of times where the people, people of Israel didn't do what God said. In fact, at one point he said, you know what, all of you, who were slaves in Egypt have acted so ungratefully you don't get to go to the promised land only your children will and so they wander in the desert for 40 years while one generation dies off and the next generation comes of age and then they get to the promised land and they begin to take over what God has given them And there's all sorts of military stories. If you like military stories, that's the book of Joshua, right before Judges. And where Judges comes is at the end of that time, the people of Israel are finally moving into the promised land. But what happens is they don't fully take over the land. And what follows that is this sort of list of what can only be called tragedies. Uh, a set of stories that can only be called trashy tales about terrible people which if this is a if this is a book of the bible that has that has murder rape regicide uh, that has all sorts of terrible things in it it begs a question doesn't it why is this book in the bible I thought the Bible was supposed to be a book that gave us nice moral things to do. I thought it was supposed to be heartwarming stories that we could tell our kids. Spoiler alert, there's not a lot of stories for your kids in the book of Judges. At least not that you can tell them all about. You might be able to tell them, yeah, Samson was really strong and some girl cut his hair, right? But you, can, you cannot go into the detail that the book of Judges goes into. So why is this in our Bible? If we believe that God wrote and intended everything for us, why does he give us these trashy tales of terrible people? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is to remind us that the Bible is not just a moral tale. It's very easy for you and I to reduce the Bible to Aesop's fables to sort of this list of nice things, right? The tortoise and the hare, right? Slow and steady wins the race. It's a, it's a moral at the end of the story. The, the scorpion and the turtle, right? Don't trust terrible people, right? Whatever sort of story and fable from years ago you pick, the Bible just isn't a list of nice moral tales. It tells us about real life. It tells, tells us what happens when our decisions run rampant. But not only that, what's really amazing about the book of Judges is this story that runs underneath the entire thing. And that is this, that God is constantly faithful. He is unflinching in his faithfulness to a people, I'm sorry, unflinching in his faithfulness to people who are continually unfaithful. In the book of Judges, what we're going to see over the next few weeks, next few months, is that the people of Israel just can't get it right. Every time something good happens to them, they're going to mess it up. So the high point of the book is the very beginning. The best thing that we're going to see in this whole story is the very beginning. And basically the whole book is, it only gets worse from here. And what we see is the sort of people of Israel and even their leaders get worse and worse and worse is that we need someone better. That all of these human leaders are failing. And I think that's something that we can sort of see again and again because so many times we want to put our trust in human leaders. We want to put our trust in ourselves. And the book of Judges is a mirror that gets held up to us that says you... And your leaders can't do it. You need someone better. On your own, you are going to mess this up again and again. And so the people of Israel, they come into this land, and the land is filled with the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are people that God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get rid of all the Canaanites, and here's what I really want you to do. The Canaanites have all of these other gods, and I want you to take and tear down the altar to all of these gods. Everywhere where you find one of these altars, everywhere where you find Canaanites worshiping their gods, you need to destroy that. Is this because God's in favor of ethnic cleansing? Is this because God hates certain groups of people? I mean, some, some of you laugh, but, but when God gives the command to take out all the Canaanites and their gods, what is he doing? One of the things he's doing is showing great mercy because uh, the religion that the Canaanites practiced, they followed uh, mainly two gods. One of them was called Baal. He was the god of sort of fertility and thunder. And then the other was sort of his uh, consort, his sort of female equivalent, and her name was Ashtara. And she was also a fertility god. And you think, it's an agrarian society. What is the most important thing to people who farm for a living? Animals and crops, right? They need the rain so that their crops grow. They need those crops to grow so they can feed their animals. And so the Canaanites decided that they were going to worship whoever that it was that made this rain come and made their animals get pregnant. But in the process, their religion became a religion where rape was a part of the religion and child sacrifice was demanded. So when God says, I want you to go in and I want you to get rid of all of these Canaanite worshiping places, I want you to tear down these temples to Baal and Ashtoreth, he's not engaging in ethnic cleansing. What he's doing is showing great mercy because all of this stuff that's going on, he wants to stop. But as you open up the pages of the book of Judges chapter 1 has one phrase that keeps getting repeated over and over. It goes through all 12 tribes of Israel as they move into the land and what it shows is that they did not completely take out all of the Canaanites. And so it'll say, and the tribe of Zebulon they lived in this area between this place and that place between this river and that mountain and they kind of took over everything, but they let the Canaanites in this city live. And then the tribe of, of Ephraim lived in this area, but they let the Canaanites stay over here. And, then, and it goes through all 12 tribes of Israel, and every time, the chorus that's repeated, that the, the writer of the book of Judges says is, but they didn't completely take the Canaanites out. They didn't completely tear down all of the temples. They left cities here and there. They left little things here and there where the people could continue to stay. And so it's in light of that, as the people have finally settled down, have started to farm their own land, living neighbor to neighbor with the Canaanites that they didn't send out of the land, that we get to our story. But there's one more thing that's going to be helpful for us as we study this book. And that's this. That the book of Judges is meant to be an allegory for our life. We're meant to see ourselves in these stories. Now, when you and I watch a movie, we always want to identify with the hero, right? As, as guys, right, we watch Star Wars. We ask ourselves, are you more of a Finn or a Poe? Right? Are you more of a Luke or a Han? Right? And every self-respecting guy knows that the right answer to that question is I'm a Han. Right? I, I shot first. I'm an outlaw. Right? What, what happens when we watch movies? Our natural instinct is to identify with the hero. The, oh yeah, yeah. I'm kind of like that guy. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm. I'm a little bit Jason Bourne. I mean, not a lot Jason Bourne, but you know. I'm a little bit Jason Bourne on the inside, right? Or whether it's a, you know what I mean, are you more of an Elsa or an Anna, right? Pick pick your movie, pick your genre. All of us want to identify with the heroes in the story. But when we come to the book of Judges, what's really important is for us, honestly, not to identify with those people. When we read these stories, we're the people of Israel. The people of Israel are the ones that are giving us pictures of our life. So here we are. The people have come into the land. They have not fully kicked the Canaanites out. They are living side by side. And we get to our text for this morning. So if you would, stand up. I'm going to read the first five verses of Judges chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not... Uh, The words will be on the screen here. Judges chapter 2 says this, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, which means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. As we read this story of the people of Israel not kicking all of the Canaanites out of the land, but making treaties with them, enslaving them, whatever else they did, what we're supposed to see is a picture of ourselves. And here's the picture that this story paints of you and me. We are half-hearted in the way that we approach Jesus. We are half-hearted in our faith, and what we want to do is hold back areas in our life. We say, I'm I'm very interested in Jesus in all of these areas of my life except that one. And what we do is we build these little cities. We build these little castles in our lives. And we say, not there. Why do we do this? Why did the people of Israel not take out the Canaanites? Why did they allow them to live in these cities? Why do we half-heartedly approach our faith? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One's because we're lazy. If I'm going to be serious about my faith, if I'm going to be wholehearted about my faith, it requires that I stop and think and engage with God through prayer, through reading my Bible, through really thinking about what's going on in my heart, through not going, yes, I did this wrong thing, but asking myself, why did I do that? What was driving me in that moment? And honestly, most of us myself included are just too lazy to go through that effort and so what happens is these areas build up these, these parts build scar tissue they calcify and they become hard and I hold them back from God because I'm just too lazy to think about them or maybe I'm scared maybe I'm scared to to really admit what's going on in my heart If I admit that I've got that stuff going on in my heart, if I admit that's the way I think when no one else is around, I'll be exposed. Maybe someone important to me won't love me. And so I don't go there. Or maybe it's isolation. You know, one of the ways that these areas build up, these areas that we won't let God touch, these areas that keep us from wholeheartedly approaching God is the fact that we isolate ourselves. We put ourselves on an island apart from community. So we don't let anybody know us. And if nobody knows us, if nobody knows who we really are, they can't call us out. They can't say, hey, this is what you're doing and that's sketchy. And so we isolate ourselves. We pull ourselves back and say, I'm not going to let anybody know me so that they'll never find out about that stuff I've got in the back corner. And we do this because so many times we think that we can't handle it. I can't change. I Listen, I, I can't tell the truth to this other person. I... My relationships are in a good spot. I can't wreck that. I, I was just built this way. This is the way I'm wired. I can't change it. And we put so many of these can'ts up in our life, but let's be honest. How many times that we say, I can't do what wholeheartedly following Jesus is, do we really mean I won't? Right? Uh, this, is, this is, if you're a parent, you know this Full-heartedly. My children are wide awake and absolutely full of energy. And then when I say, it's time to clean your room, oh, I can't. I'm so tired. All of the sudden, I have slipped into narcolepsy, and I'm going to fall asleep on the kitchen floor, Dad. I don't, I'm just going to fall asleep right there. I can't. Well, no. When my kids tell me that, when my kids tell me they can't help clean their room because they're tired, what are they actually saying? I won't. I won't help clean my room. Listen. You and I are no better than five-year-olds when it comes to wholeheartedness. God shines a light on those corners in our lives and says... How about that? And we say I can't. What we really mean. What's really going on is we're saying I won't. I don't want to. I I don't want to tell that person the truth. I don't want to wholeheartedly engage in this relationship because if I do it could wreck the relationship. And so I'm going to let all that junk build up. I'm not going to tell the truth. Because if I do, it'll wreck it. And I don't want to do that. I, listen, if I wholeheartedly follow Jesus, it may, it may mean that something's going to have to change in the way I do life. It may mean that I'm going to have to be more serious about things. It may mean that the way I go to work is going to change. And I don't want to throw my life into that kind of chaos. So I'm just not going to. You know, I was just hardwired this way. I can't change who I am. I, I don't want to. Because pleasure is more important to me than wholeheartedly following God. And this is what the people of Israel were saying and doing when it came to the Canaanites. And it's the same as you and I. And so God sees that. God sees what they're doing and he sends this angel of the Lord to them. And the angel comes down and, and he says, it's one of sort of the most frank times that God speaks to his people. Did you catch that when he says, what is this that you've done? What- why? Why did you do this? Right? He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Not because you were good, not because you were a powerful nation, but because of my love for you. I brought you up and then I gave you a land that you didn't deserve. And not only that, But you got to reap crops that you didn't plant. And you got to inherit farms that you never worked. You got all of this gracefully. I did all of this for you. And when you went up to battle, I miraculously won all of the battles for you. This little nation of slaves defeats superpower after superpower on their way out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. I have done all this for you and the thing that I told you, right? You you know, the, the one thing, I had one thing, you had one job was to tear down all the Canaanite altars. Just be wholehearted. And you didn't do it. And you've now put me in this position. And here's the position, here's the tension that God is expressing. It's a tension that weighs on your life and mine. God has promised To love His people unconditionally. No matter what. God has promised to bless His people when they obey Him. How do we get around that tension? God's love is on the one hand unconditional. No matter what you do, I will love you. I will chase you to the ends of the earth. If you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I won't. How do we deal with that tension? Have you ever felt that in your life? Some of us on the one hand go, you know what? I'm going to live my life by the conditional clauses. If I do the right thing, if I stop sinning, if I work really hard, if I pull myself up by my moral bootstraps then God will bless me and everything will be fine. But what happens when we live our lives that way is we get real judgmental real quick because everybody else isn't living to the same standards we are. If if they would just try harder, they would look more like me. If they would just work a little bit harder, God would bless them. What's the other side of this? Right, Uncondition- you know what it doesn't matter what I do God's going to love me just the same everything is fine everything is awesome because no matter what I do God loves me and I'm okay he's okay we're okay everything is good and how many of us live our lives by that to where we look around and go doesn't matter what I do doesn't matter what I do at home doesn't matter what I think in my mind doesn't matter anything I can do whatever I want because God is still going to love me and we live that way and God says both of those things are true my love for you is unconditional he does not take away the land he does not say cause you guys didn't kick all of them out I'm gonna kick you out but he also allows consequences to come he says because you didn't kick the Canaanites out they're gonna stay They're going to stay there. And they're going to be a snare and a thorn to you. And the book of Judges is absolutely the story of that snare and that thorn. Of the way that because they let the Canaanites stay, every time we turn around, the Canaanites are a problem. They are a bone spur in the heel of the people of Israel. They are that splinter in their mind's eye that keeps on going. Because sometimes what God does in our lives is allow us to feel the consequence of our choices. We don't like that, do we? We don't like to think about the fact that our choices have real consequences. So how do we resolve this tension? God's promise to love the people of Israel unconditionally. God's promise to love us unconditionally. And yet He says at the same time that if you do the right thing, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. How do we get this tension, these two things that are, that are far apart together? This tension finds... It's release in the cross of Jesus. Because Jesus lived that perfect life that only deserved blessing. Every moment that Jesus was alive, he continually lived wholeheartedly towards God. So that all that he deserved was blessing. The only thing he deserved was blessing. And yet when he goes up on that cross, what does he receive? He doesn't just die at the hands of the Romans, though he does. When he goes up on that cross, he takes all of the curses that you and I deserve for our half-heartedness. For the way we hold things back. For the way that we build little walls around parts of our hearts and say, Jesus, you can have my life except that. For all the ways that we say, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Jesus takes the curse for our half-heartedness. He takes our guilt. He takes our shame. And he dies for it. So that he in return can give us all the blessings we don't reserve. All the blessings we don't deserve. Jesus says I will fulfill all of these conditional promises so that you can receive my unconditional love and so where are we at this morning how do we respond to this the first way is by being brave and admitting the areas where we are half hearted Because the degree to which we will understand and appreciate the grace of Jesus is the degree to which we are willing to admit that we are more broken and messed up than we want to admit. That I am more half-hearted than I want you to know. That my life is not as clean as I want everyone else to think it is. That I am half-hearted far more than half the time. And when we begin to admit that, we begin to see how deep and great the love of Jesus is. When we, whether we're a Christian or not, begin to say, yes, I am still far more broken. I I have far more of these areas that I hold back from Jesus in my half-heartedness. I have far more of that than I want you to know. That I'm not holding back one or two areas. I'm not hiding a sandcastle. I'm the beach. I am the kid who stuffs everything in the closet in the movie. And I don't want you to open that closet. Because if you do, it's all going to come tumbling out. That is far more what my half-heartedness looks like. And as we begin to admit that, we get to see again and again how great the love of Jesus is. That he is wholly faithful to half-hearted people like you and I. And when we begin to see that, it begins to make us free. When we begin to see that because of the cross of Jesus, we're more loved and accepted than we could possibly dream, I begin to be more and more willing to be wholehearted. Because I know that if I admit that I'm holding this back, that I'm not willing to tell the truth, that I'm not willing to make hard decisions, that I'm not willing to give up pleasure, whatever it is that we're holding back, when we begin to see how good Jesus is, we'll slowly begin to take our hands away. That's why we ought to mute the uh, thing that runs the TVs, huh? I begin to let go and see how great the grace of Jesus is.